Good morning, everyone. It is a, a joy to get to be here uh, and sing and worship alongside you all, to sing praises to our God who is worthy of worship. Today, we're going to talk a lot about why we sing praises to our God. We'll see it's because it's, it's a result and an overflow of the experience of salvation from God. This, this pattern is modeled for us by the Israelites. We've been uh, watching their journey. As they, they started enslaved in Egypt, they have cried out to the Lord for help. And he has heard their cry and heard their prayer. And he has made a way for salvation. He sent them Moses. He has worked mighty signs and wonders. And he has delivered his people. Last week, we looked in depth at the Passover, and we saw and celebrated that the Israelites got to leave Egypt, leave their slavery, and go and follow the Lord. It seems, right, that the story is over, that it's all good news from here on out. However, we run into a bad situation today, where Pharaoh, the Egyptians, they get up and they pursue the Israelites, and they trap them in front of the sea. And there's, there's no hope for them. They're in a worse situation now than when they left Egypt. And the only way out is if God can work a miracle of salvation. And so this miracle at the Red Sea, this is the moment, this is the main act of salvation for the Israelites. Right? This is not the 11th plague. It's not the 11th sign or wonder that God does. This truly is ultimate salvation and victory over Egypt. And with this freedom, with salvation, we see that the people respond with the first song recorded in Scripture. They respond in worship because of the salvation provided by God. And this gets at our big idea that God's salvation evokes worship from his people. God moves mightily oftentimes in unexpected ways, and he works to, to provide salvation for his people. And as a result, when we experience this salvation, this freedom in Christ, the natural response, the natural overflow is one of worship. So today we just get to do a deep dive into salvation and see how we respond. We'll first look at how God often works in unexpected ways, ways that don't make sense to us, to bring about his salvation. But he's always faithful to do so. Right? Our second point is that God will provide salvation for his people. And finally, we will look at the natural overflow of salvation, and that is worship. Before we dive in, uh, would you just pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we have been singing, as we are now about to begin reading, God, I pray that the the fact that salvation is available through Jesus Christ. God, I pray that that fact would leave us awestruck. God, that we are amazed that the God of eternity has worked to provide a means of salvation for his people. Lord, would that motivate us and move us to thankfulness and ultimately to worship and glorifying you. It is in your name we pray. Amen. So we will be picking up in Exodus chapter 13, 
verses 17. If you uh, don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you. It's going to be on page 52 of that copy if you want to follow along with us. And I'm going to quickly uh, make our way through a pretty big section of Scripture. And we're not going to spend too much time. I'll pause kind of as we're going through the passage just to provide a little bit of commentary. This whole section, it really sets the scene for what God is about to do. And a lot of it, when we slow down a little bit and think about it, again, it's a little counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense unless we know that God is ultimately in control and he's working all things for his glory. So we'll pick up in verse 17. As we're going through, you might want to make a few notes that that will help you make sense of this passage. So this is uh, verse 17 of chapter 13. It says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So real quick, we'll pause and and think, the Israelites know how to get back to the promised land, right? They knew where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were from. They knew the shortest path was going along a certain way, and God's not leading them on that path. They're trusting and following where, where God is going and it's a little interesting way, but we learn, right, he's doing this so that they, they don't get scared of other nations. And that might strike us as odd if God has just worked mighty wonders to deliver his people. Do we really think that the people would be scared of other nations? And in a little bit we'll see that, yes, people are quickly prone to fear and doubting of God. So let's see how God leads his people. Verse 18, but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from there. Here's one detail that's pointing back. If you want to know the cross-reference, this is from Genesis 50, verses 24 and 25. And there it says that Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. This is the land of Egypt, right? To the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So for 400 years, the Israelites have known that God would rescue them from Egypt. They've held on to the bones of Joseph, and they're waiting to take them back to the land of their forefathers, And here, I think Moses has included this detail to remind us that God is faithful on his promises, even if it takes 400 years for him to do this. So let's pick up again, verse 20. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. We've seen God appear as fire and smoke before. Another cross-reference is Genesis 15. When God first made his covenant with Abraham, they sacrificed the animals, and God then passed through these as a smoking pot, cloud, right, and a flaming torch. There's the fire. He, He appeared to Moses in fire in the burning bush. And so now again, the presence of the Lord is seen to be with his people by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He is with them and leading them. 
in 14, here's, here's what God is doing. He says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahirath between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptian, Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Verse 2 is a little odd. right? God is leading the people, and, he's, and he tells them to turn back and go camp by the sea. This doesn't make sense. Right? If, if you were to be attacked, you're not in a, in a defensible location. And in fact, if, if you do get attacked, you have nowhere to retreat because there's a sea behind you. And then God says that the Egyptians are going to come and chase the Israelites, and they're going to catch up with them. This is an awful situation if you think about it tactically. But we know that God is orchestrating events so that he might work an incredible miracle. We continue in verse 5. And so when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamped by the sea by Pihahirath in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. If we were to put ourselves in, our, in the shoes of the Israelites, I think we would respond the same way of fear. Right? If, if you want to think of that, this in, in modern day terms, I was thinking there's one movie scene where some people are trying to escape in a truck. And at one point they look in the rearview mirror and there are two Black Hawk attack helicopters in their rearview mirror. And the game is over very quickly after that, right? And so imagine you're the Israelites and you're just camping by the sea and you look up and a world superpower, their military might is closing in on you. I too would cry out and be afraid. And fear is a fine response, right? The, the Israelites have cried out to the Lord before and crying out and saying, God, help us. We have no hope. That is an okay response. But what happens is the Israelites actually respond with a lack of faith. Let's pick up in verse 11 and see what they actually say. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt? That you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we had said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Remember, God has already heard the cries of the Israelites. He's already responded and saved them. Yet at the first sign of difficulty, the people quickly turn and abandon the Lord. They would rather go back and serve Pharaoh instead of serving the Lord. But thankfully, the Israelites have Moses to remind them and point them back 
towards God. This is what Moses says to the people. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. The crowds are quick to doubt the Lord. But Moses turns and seeks to remind them to trust in God's faithfulness, his power and his promises. Moses here, he is acting as a mediator between God and the Israelites. Right? He is declaring to the Israelites the words of the Lord. He, he's doing signs as he is lifting up his staff over the Red Sea. He's kind of acting in the place of God so that the people can have a, a greater understanding for what God is like and who he is. But we also see Moses represent humanity before God. Right? When he goes before God in verse 15, God says, why do you cry out to me? In one sense, Moses is kind of bearing the responsibility for how the people are acting before the Lord. And Moses has to do this continually throughout the rest of the Pentateuch. Many times, due to the sins of the people, the, the anger of the Lord is stirred up against Moses when they're meeting. And he has to stand in the gap for them and represent and again ask the Lord for mercy and grace. And as Moses is the mediator for the, the Israelites, today Jesus Christ is our great mediator for all believers. He is a greater, greater mediator and he is a perfect mediator. right? Because he is both 100% God and 100% man. He perfectly represents what God is like to humanity. John 14.9 has said that anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so we get to see and know who God is in the face of Jesus Christ. But Jesus is also the perfect representation of humanity before God. He is our perfect representative. Thank goodness that he took on flesh right through his incarnation so that he could stand in our place. Because the truth is, is we all deserve judgment for our sins, for rebelling against the Lord. Yet as a human, Jesus Christ stood in our place to bear the blame and pay the penalty for our sins that we deserved. He stood before his Father, able to take on the infinite wrath because of his divinity, yet able to stand in our place because of his humanity. And he did this because of our own sin. Yet despite our sin, despite our doubts or the fears of the Israelites, God is still working to bring about salvation for his people. Why? Not because of anything we've deserved, but solely for his own glory. Verses 17 through 18, God again talks about how he is seeking to get glory over Pharaoh and over the Egyptians. And I want us to think about this word. We often talk about glory, right? We say the glory of God. 
Man, I want my life to glorify God. We, we say here that the end for which God acts is his own glory. And so what is glory? This is a very long conversation. If you want to know more about it, I recommend just reading the whole Bible. It is all about the glory of God. But a quick definition from John Piper is that the glory of God is the visible manifestation of God's holiness. God's glory is the visible manifestation of his holiness. And that definition might be more confusing than the word glory. But what he's getting at is that the glory of God is God's nature and God's character on display. When you see elements that reflect God's nature, you are, in a sense, seeing the glory of God. When we say God is holy, we mean that he is completely set apart. He is completely other than, right? He is one of a kind, utterly unique, and completely different from anything else in all of creation. And in him, in his holiness, all of his attributes are perfectly displayed. And so the sight of God's character, of his goodness, of his majesty, this is his glory. And because God is holy, one of a kind, he's infinitely valuable. He is the rarest thing ever, and therefore he is, high, he is to be highly valued and praised and honored. And so for us then to ascribe God what is due his name because of how holy he is, that is how we properly glorify and honor and serve God. But it's easy for us to glorify other things, to value other things more than God, or to run to other things for security rather than God himself, like we see the Israelites do here. Right? We see that this is the ultimate problem and issue here, is that they would rather return to Egypt and cast themselves on the mercy of Pharaoh and serve him rather than trusting in God, and that he can provide a means of salvation, and that through him he can provide freedom so that they might worship and serve him. The issue is one of glory. They would rather glorify Pharaoh than God. But despite their weakness of faith, God is working to move mightily to bring about salvation for his people. We then get to turn here, picking up in verse 19 of chapter 14. And I just want to read the whole thing to the end and see how God comes through for his people. This is verse 19. Then the angel of the Lord, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea. 
that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course. When the morning appeared, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so that the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. This is the mighty act of salvation that God worked for his people. I mentioned earlier that this is not, right, the 11th sign or wonder. This is the salvation for his people. He has provided freedom and victory over Egypt. Verse 30, it says it that the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Right? We see that the proverbial head of the snake, represented by Pharaoh in Egypt, has been crushed by the mighty hand of God. And so through the Red Sea, God has worked both salvation and judgment. Right? He has given him, he has proven himself faithful and gracious to the Israelites. He has done all the fighting on their behalf. They needed only watch and be silent. So God is, is seen as a merciful Savior through the Red Sea, yet he is also seen as an almighty judge in his victory and triumph and defeat over Egypt. We saw in verse 25 that the Egyptians truly recognized that they were facing almighty God, and they were terrified. God gets glory over Pharaoh because he proves himself to be mightier then the world superpower, and he alone, is worthy of honor, service, and worship, not Pharaoh. And while this is an incredible act of God to bring salvation to the Israelites, that he parted seas and allowed people to walk through on dry ground, this is only a type or a foreshadowing of the greater salvation made possible through Jesus Christ. There are many similarities between the ministry of Jesus Christ and the pattern of the Israelites. Here they, they pass through the waters of the Red Sea, and they're about to go for 40 years into the wilderness, right? And Jesus Christ, he passed through the waters through his baptism and then went out into the desert and was tempted for 40 days. Yet while the Israelites would fail time and time again, Christ remained perfect unto the end. And through his sacrifice on the cross and through his resurrection of the dead, he has saved his people and he has dealt the ultimate death blow to the serpent, crushing his head. But as the Red Sea was a vessel of salvation as well as judgment, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, is also a judge. We do have a merciful and loving God, but we also serve a just and wrathful God who cannot let sin go unpunished. And therefore today, if you have never repented of your sins, then from the story of the Red Sea, I invite you to consider your situation, that you stand guilty before Almighty God, and you will be washed away in his infinite wrath for your rebellion against him in sin and for failing to glorify him perfectly. We deserve to receive a crushing blow like the Egyptians, 
But a way through this judgment has been offered, and that is through Jesus Christ. And it is only by faith in Jesus Christ. As the Israelites were told to to only be still and to watch, today you only have to repent and believe. Christ has accomplished all the work on your behalf. We are saved by grace through faith alone. Salvation is offered today. God will receive glory from your life, either as a judge over you, over your sin, where he is seen as just and good for his wrath, or as gracious and loving Savior if you repent and believe in him. Now, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then this the story of the Red Sea, I think, still has great implication for us today. Unfortunately, the takeaway is not that God will miraculously solve all of your problems. It would be wonderful, right, if you become a Christian, if, if our promise is that God will defy laws of physics to, to deal with all of your problems. Life is hard. The Christian life is not an easy one. We do not have the promise that all of our problems will be swept away like the Egyptians. What we do learn from this story, though, and what we can take away with us is that God moves mightily to save his people. God goes to extreme lengths for your salvation. He acted powerfully to redeem Israel. Right? I think we can look at the Red Sea and just be amazed that a body of water was, was divided in two and people walked through with a wall of water on their left and a wall of water on their right. Yet even greater salvation has been won for you in the person of Jesus Christ. And just as the, the Israelites were told to just walk, right? Be silent. The Lord will fight for you. Walk. By seeing their example, we realize that our salvation truly is, has nothing to do with us. It is only at the great mercy of God. And when we gain a deeper appreciation for our helplessness and, our, and our, the bad news and our state before God, I think we appreciate the good news of salvation even more. And so, when we look to this story, when we look back on the gospel, would we never see God as a vending machine to take care of our problems? Though he may, in his love and mercy, help you through difficult situations, right? Would we ultimately look and see that our God is a God who fights for his people and who provides salvation for them? And that can carry us through any hardship that we may face in this life. And the only natural response to this realization and understanding this is one of worship. And this is what we see the people do. It says that they fear the Lord, they believe him, and then they respond in song. And as we move to this song, I want to think about that phrase real quick of fearing the Lord. We saw the Egyptians, right? They were terrified of God. And so are the Israelites scared of God? That seems odd. How How do you worship and sing to someone who you were terrified of? Right? People are right to fear the judgment of God. However, if you are in Christ, then there is therefore now no condemnation for you. So we shouldn't be scared of this God. But what do we mean by fear? Oftentimes people liken this to respect. And, and I do agree with that, but I don't think it, it fully encompasses this idea of fearing the Lord. Because elsewhere in Scripture it says that we should delight in the fear of the Lord. So how do you delight in respecting something? Right? I could go to a, the edge of a cliff and respect that that fall would kill me. 
but I don't necessarily delight in that. And so I want to put this, this mental image in your brain of when you read fear the Lord or think of the fear of the Lord, I want you to think of trembling knees. Because your knees can be shaky in times of fear. Right? Through respect, through seeing the magnanimity of God, His power. But your knees can also shake, and you might have to sit down from, in times of overwhelming joy. Right? You can fearfully walk to the edge of a cliff and see, see a fall, but you can also lift up your gaze, and if you're at the Grand Canyon, then perhaps you are just awestruck by what's before you. And you have to sit down from sheer beauty. And I think this idea gets more at, at the idea of a proper fear of the Lord, where, yes, we have this deep respect and fear of his, his sheer strength. But there's also knee-weakening amazement at his grace and mercy and salvation. And so with this in mind, let's see how the Israelites respond in song. This is chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. As we're going through, I want you to notice how theocentric or how God-centered, God-focused this song is. In fact, I'd encourage you to note when first-person pronouns, I's and me's and my's, how often those are even used in this song. So here we go. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send them out. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till your people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh, 
with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The only response The natural overflow of salvation is worship. And all the people having just walked through the Red Sea praise the Lord for his glorious holy name. All the people do this. The the thought behind why they repeat the refrain or the first line with Miriam and the women is to say that men, women, the entire camp of Israel is worshiping and praising God. His salvation is complete. They are free from Egypt. And God has brought them to a place where they can now worship and serve him. As I said before, this is the first song that we have recorded in the Bible. And there's a lot here. But, but just briefly, to, to break this song down, we see it has two main sections. And the first in verses 1 through 12, at first reflect on what God just did. There's praise of who God is. And then after that, it moves in verses 13 to 18 to look forward at how God will continue to be faithful for Israel. And they sing a song of trustworthiness and trusting in who God is and what he has done. So in those first 12 verses, see how they magnify God. They praise him for his strength. He is their song, their salvation. Our God is powerful, a man of war whose right hand shatters the enemy He commands the winds and waves. He is Lord over all. Yet did you notice in verse 9 that people, humanity, tries to rebel against God? In our own pride and folly, we think we can stand up to the Lord of the universe. Yet we are quickly dismissed. And this moves the singers to say in verse 11, Who is like you, O Lord? Among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? No one is like our God, because he is holy, and therefore he is deserving of all glory and praise and honor. And because of who God is, the people then have have trust that he will protect them as he is leading them to their next location, which will ultimately be Mount Sinai. That the, the, the surrounding nations, the peoples are afraid of who this God is because of his mighty deeds. That because of what God has done in the past, the Israelites have faith in the present and hold the promises for the future. And I think we can learn a lot from this song, but, but two primary things is, is to reflect this pattern in our own life. Where we first look back and see how God has been faithful. See who he is what he has done for us. And knowing who God is then motivates us and and grows trust in our own lives that he will carry us through the difficult times of life. This pattern of this song is a wonderful pattern for our own songs. And the second thing I want to comment on about this song again is how theocentric it is. How much this song talks about God. And I want to ask, how do our songs reflect this method? Do we also focus on the Lord? Honestly, I think there are a lot of songs today where many first-person pronouns are used. 
we talk about my problems and that I need to see a victory over my, my issues. My chains have been broken. I am loved. And, and do hear me, like, we do need time to reflect in this way, right? You truly do need to know your identity before the Lord. There are often times that I don't do this well, that I know a lot of truth, but I don't believe it about myself. And so I do need to be reminded of the truth, and, and so do you, that you are loved, that you are saved, that, that in Jesus Christ you are free from sin. There's no, no longer condemnation. That is all true, but what can happen is if you only ever focus on yourself and what salvation means for you, is if you don't supplement this idea with theologically rich worship music, then oftentimes our worship and faith can be subject to our emotions. Right? How you feel about a current sin struggle in your life can dictate how you might want to worship or sing about your broken chains. If you're feeling guilty or shameful, you may feel that you're not actually loved by God. Or if you're going through a particular, particularly hard season of life, you might think that maybe you just have weak faith, and that's why you're not getting a breakthrough or a victory right now. And so if your worship and your theology is rooted in your emotions and thinking about yourself, then your confidence can be easily shaken by the waves of life. But if we reflect the pattern of this song here, if we align our beliefs with a rock of truth and we worship God for who he is and what he has done and we look back upon his faithfulness at the Red Sea and at the cross, then when, when life gets hard, we have a resolute and a firm foundation for all eternity. And I'm grateful that here at King's Church, I think we do have theologically rich worship. And we're about to respond in song. I'll go ahead and invite the band back up to get ready so that we can respond in song. I want to say, man, we are grateful that we have leaders, and especially Eric, right, who is guarding the truth that they get sung through our songs. We want what gets sung here to direct our gaze upward, to look at God and see who he is. And again, by recognizing who he is, we have faith and trust now and in our present day as we look forward in the future and we make it through hardships of this life. And one last reminder is the idea that I think true freedom, true awe, true worship comes from moments of self-forgetfulness, not self-focus. And an example, if you've ever been to Zion National Park, there's the famous Zion Mount Carmel Tunnel. And you're in darkness for about a mile, and then all of a sudden you come out and you're in the middle of this canyon, and it is breathtaking. Oftentimes, you're road tripping out there, right? So you might get a little cramped, your knees are hurting, you're ready to get out of the car. And when you catch a glimpse of that view, your road trip weariness fades away. And all you can, be, all you can do is be left in awe and wonder at the, the beauty before you. And so similarly, I think one of the best ways to get over our sin struggles, a feeling of inadequacy, fears, difficult situations, the best way to get over those is not by focusing on your problems, but looking up and beholding the glory of God. See what he has done and worship him for it. So what a joy now that we get to turn and respond to God, celebrate his salvation through worship and singing that our God is holy, that he has brought our salvation for us.
Would you go ahead and uh, stand with me? I just want to pray together as we are getting ready to worship. So, Father, I pray that you would humble us with feelings of, of inadequacy. God, feelings that, that, that truly before your wrath, God, before your judgment, that there is nothing we can do. We are, we are helpless. And Lord, I pray that you would refresh in our minds the sweetness of the gospel. Lord, return to us the joy of our salvation. Father, would we be amazed and awestruck that Christ came and, and died in our place. God, that that is more amazing than dividing ocean waters. Lord, we, we cry out like Moses, God, would you show us your glory? We can't, even, we can't even stand in the presence of your glory, but God, would you just continue to, to open our eyes that we may behold wonderful, glorious things through your scriptures. Lord, would, would glimpses of who you are peering through the windows of Scripture, seeing our great God. Oh, God, would that move us to worship. A natural overflow, God, out of thanksgiving, we can't help but overflow into praise for who you are and what you have done. So, Lord, hear our, our words. God, here today, would we be a church that glorifies you in song. You are, you are fully deserving completely worthy, God, because you are a holy God. So, Lord, be honored in this place today and in our lives. And it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.